Welcome to The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Listen to Joe tackle the really tough moral issues, current events, and politics from a Catholic perspective. Now here's Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Hello again, Sixpackers, and welcome back to The Cantankerous Catholic, episode 53. I recall the movie Roadhouse starring Patrick Swayze as Dalton. In one scene after Dalton had been hurt, he was in the office of a doctor and soon-to-be girlfriend, Kelly Doc Lynch, to get stitches. Dalton had refused Novocaine to deaden his skin in preparation for the needle used to sew his skin together. Doc asked him if he enjoyed pain. His reply is one I've never forgotten. Pain don't hurt. I've actually meditated on that tough guy response because it's actually a great Catholic common man or Catholic tough guy comment. I'll explain that as soon as we get back from paying the bills. Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, is a welcome visitor to parishes across the United States every Sunday through his What We Believe, Why We Believe It bulletin inserts. Using humor, immutable truth, and ignoring political correctness, Joe Sixpack helps the average Catholic in the pew better know and understand our holy and ancient faith in a way that is refreshing, awe-inspiring, and makes readers chest-pounding proud to be Catholic. And readers love it. Now you can enjoy Joe's work by getting the best of What We Believe, Why We Believe It book series. In fact, get two copies of each book, one for yourself and one for your pastor. Then your priest can decide if he wants to help your fellow parishioners by subscribing to the What We Believe, Why We Believe It bulletin inserts. Get your copy of the best of What We Believe, Why We Believe It by Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, today in print or ebook on Amazon, Apple Books, Barnes & Noble, and Kobo. What inspired this episode's main topic was my recent exposure to two separate events. The first was a conversation my wife had with a dear friend of ours who happens to be a Protestant. We love her deeply and, as you'd expect love to be, want only the best for. She had indicated to my wife that she wants do not resuscitate on her medical records so that she can avoid suffering and go home to be with Jesus. The other incident came from a six-packer asking Joe Sixpack the ever Catholic guy a question. Apparently, this six-packer is a terminal cancer patient, and the pain she suffers is constant and horrific. She was asking about the Catholic Church's teaching about pain and suffering, which I'll explain in a moment. These two people were asking about end-of-life issues, but this Catholic teaching doesn't apply only to end-of-life issues. It applies to everyday life for all of us, and it has eternal implications, which is why this topic is so very important to the Cantacorin's Catholics listening audience. The first thing to be said about pain and suffering is that it's inherently evil in and of itself, which is why we naturally recoil from experiencing it. But it's something man freely chose when Adam disobeyed God. This freely chosen human condition is a consequence of original sin. It's not something we should escape, and we shouldn't even try to escape it, as I'll explain. Modern man, especially in the Occidental West, rejects anything that's contrary to comfort and convenience. 
While it's natural to recoil from and avoid unnecessary pain and suffering, it's not natural to desire only comfort and convenience. In fact, the desire for only comfort and convenience is hedonistic and selfish, because for any one person to have this inordinate desire is always at the cost of other people. That's just not right. The good news about pain and suffering is that Jesus sanctified them on the cross. Think about it. Jesus, who is true God and true man, experienced the entire panoply of human suffering. The shortest verse in the Bible is John 11:35. Jesus wept. This is Jesus experiencing human grief at the loss of his friend Lazarus, despite the fact that he knew he'd raised the dead man from the grave. Jesus also experienced a lot of pain and suffering that's only implied in Scripture. For example, the willful rejection by the Pharisees and other children of Israel at various times during his public ministry had to be immensely painful. After all, he loved them enough that he came to redeem them from original sin, and the human part of Jesus knew that meant sacrificing his life in an incredibly painful and humiliating manner. As God, Jesus could see all things. As man, he knew the things that were about to happen to him were horrific, and he dreaded them. His agony in the garden on the night he was betrayed was so intense that he sweat drops of blood, as scripture says. The medical term for this is hematidrosis. It's caused by extreme stress, and it usually results in death eventually. Then when Judas and the temple guards came to arrest Jesus in the garden, he suffered the terrible pain of being betrayed by his friend that he'd lived with and traveled with for three years. Judas made it even more painful when he betrayed Jesus with a kiss. Then when on trial before the Sanhedrin, the very people he loved and came to redeem plucked his beard and smashed his face before sentencing him to death. When the Romans scourged him, they nearly killed him then. In fact, one father of the church said his tormentor shredded him so badly that he was, quote, one open, gaping wound, end quote. Worst of all, of course, was his crucifixion. To the Jews, crucifixion was the most humiliating form of death they could imagine. To the Romans, crucifixion was the most painful, torturous death they could imagine. And this is what they did to Jesus. What made crucifixion so humiliating to the Jew was the matter of modesty. When we see a crucifix, Jesus is wearing a loincloth, but that isn't reality. A careful reading of the various crucifixion accounts show that he was completely nude, so he was completely exposed to everyone present. Most humiliating of all was that he was exposed to his mother. Because Jesus is God the Son, and because his crucifixion was the perfect sacrifice to God the Father in reparation for the sins of all mankind, Jesus sanctified pain and suffering on the cross. That means we can offer our suffering to God as well. We can do one of two things with our suffering. We can either waste it, which means it has no value, or we can unite our suffering with the crucified Christ and offer it to God the Father in reparation for our sins and the sins of the world. In 1 Corinthians 9:24 through 27 Paul wrote, Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we can an imperishable. 
Well, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I pommel my body and subdue it, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. That quote is from the Revised Standard Version of the Bible, and the focus is on Paul saying he pommeled his body. In the Douay-Rheims Bible, which more accurately translates the original Greek in this particular text, Paul's comment is rendered, But I chastise my body and bring it into subjection, lest perhaps when I have preached others, I myself should be cast away. Paul clearly understood the value of suffering. I used to work in prison apostolate. I know of no place where there's more human suffering. The men there in prison live in fear and with constant threat of death. They suffer by being separated from the people they love. Worst of all, they've lost the one human possession that's more important than any other, their liberty. Do they deserve punishment for the crimes? You bet they do. But the things they suffer can have more benefit than just reparation to society. I used to try to get them to see and embrace the value of suffering. Those who trusted in what I told them offered their daily sufferings to God the Father in reparation for their sins and the sins of the world. Those men were easy to spot and single out from the others. Rather than live in despair and bitterness, they had joy and were able to find at least some modicum of happiness in their circumstances. Everything the Catholic Church has taught us for 2,000 years has had one aim and goal, the salvation of souls. Regarding pain, the Church tells us that the alleviation of pain is a good moral thing, especially when we alleviate the pain of others. However, she goes on to say that we can't alleviate all of our pain. The most recent official church teaching on suffering I've read actually uses a terminally ill cancer patient as the example. Terminally ill cancer patients are in constant pain. The church says it's perfectly acceptable to relieve some of that suffering, but not all of it. The church isn't being mean by saying this, but rather giving us an avenue to save our souls in our final agony by teaching us to offer our suffering to God the Father in reparation for our sins and the sins of the world. In other words, our sufferings, when united to the crucified Christ, have infinite value. Christians wrongly interpret what took place on Calvary when they say Jesus saved us. He didn't save us. He redeemed us. There's a difference. All mankind was redeemed by Jesus' sacrifice on Calvary, but that redemption had to be applied by the performance of certain criteria he demands. The one place in Scripture where Jesus best sums things up is in Matthew's version of the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7. Jesus tells us in verse 48 of Matthew 5 that we have to become saints. Then throughout the rest of the sermon, he tells us the things we have to do and the things we have to avoid in order to be pleasing to God. The one thing Jesus tells us over and over in various ways is that we have to do penances for sin in the form of fasting and other acts. What is penance but suffering? Many will rebut that Jesus assured us of our salvation. No, he didn't. There's not one place in all the New Testament where Jesus talked about salvation that there isn't a condition attached. Furthermore, Paul wrote in Philippians 2.12, 
Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. This quote from Paul doesn't sound like a man who believed our salvation is assured. Instead, it sounds like a man who believed vigilance to Jesus' laws and effort are required to be saved. That only makes sense. In the natural law of life, God so ordained things so that absolutely anything in life worth having requires effort on our part. It doesn't just fall out of the sky. Some might still rebut that there's nothing in Scripture that obliges us to obey the church on this whole suffering thingy. That's not true either. I'm not going to go through the entire apologetic here and now to demonstrate that Jesus established one church and that that church is the Catholic Church. However, I will point out a couple of common sense things. Many times in the Gospels, when Jesus was speaking only to the apostles, he told them that they spoke for him through the power of the Holy Spirit. Here are two great examples. The first comes from John 20, 21 on the first Easter night when the resurrected Jesus told his apostles, As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. He passed his own mission on to them. The other is from Luke 10, 16, when Jesus was speaking only to his apostles. He who hears you, hears me, and he who rejects you, rejects me, and he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. The other common sense thing I wanted to point out is from history. It's an indisputable fact that for the first 1,500 years of Christian history, there was only one church, and that church was the Catholic Church. There wasn't any other Christian religion until 1517 when Martin Luther gave us Lutheranism. Are we to believe then that we had to wait one and a half millennia for the fullness of divinely revealed truth? To believe that is irrational and shows a definite deficiency in intellect or laziness of thought among non-Catholic Christians. Only the Catholic Church has the authority to teach us about divinely revealed truth. One of the things she teaches us is the value of suffering and working toward our salvation. So now it's up to you who are listening to me. Either embrace your suffering and all the teachings of the Catholic Church or risk your immortal soul. It's both as simple and as complicated as that. Learn things about the Catholic faith you never knew in Joe Sixpack's Secrets of the Catholic Faith. There are many essentials to our holy and ancient faith that few modern Catholics know. Those essentials have become, well, secrets, hence the title Secrets of the Catholic Faith. Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, is always exciting, never boring, and completely politically incorrect. He never shies away from the so-called untouchable moral issues. With his use of humor and directness, readers and students can never get enough of what he teaches. According to Joe, there isn't one single teaching of the Catholic Church that can't be completely demonstrated to an inquiring mind. Everything can be demonstrated. But the Catholic laity aren't being taught these things. They're being fed pablum when they need and want meat. Secrets of the Catholic Faith is actually exciting, and it will make any Catholic's chest swell with pride. So get your copy of Secrets of the Catholic Faith by Joe Sixpack, the Every Catholic Guy, today in print or ebook on Amazon, Apple Books, Barnes and Noble, and Kobo. 
Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, wants to make sure you're informed about all the Catholic news you need to know. Here's Joe Sixpack's top five Catholic news picks for this episode. Catholic news pick number five. Hats off to LifeSite News. Cardinal Raymond Burke is calling on faithful Catholics to stand up and give witness to the truth of Jesus Christ's kingship in the face of the rise of Islam, as well as the Vatican's push for a global pact that will, in the words of Pope Francis, create a new humanism. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick Number 4 Hats off to Blabberbuzz. Several hundred members of Congress filed amicus or supporting briefs in a closely watched upcoming Supreme Court case that could decide the future of abortion access. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick Number 3 Hats off to LifeSite News. Pro-family groups petition U.S. bishops to stop funding pro-abortion, pro-LGBT organizations. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick Number 2 Hats off to Catholic News Service. Gary Sinise, the actor perhaps best known for playing Lieutenant Dan in the 1994 movie Forrest Gump, followed a rather unusual path to becoming a Catholic. You can read his whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick Number One Hats off to LifeSite News. A Catholic bishop of the United States denounced as child abuse the insane and evil transgender message given to children in schools that was recently highlighted in a video circulating on social media. Bishop Joseph Strickland of Tyler, Texas, expressed disgust over a video that featured two LGBT activists telling a classroom of school kids that boys can become girls and girls can become boys and one's identity can change over time. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Warning to snowflakes. If he thinks it, he says it. It's time now for Joe Sixpack's Common Sense Catholic Commentary. I'd like to begin this week's Common Sense Catholic Commentary with a story. Tyler had been sent to bed by his mother for using profane language. When his father came home, she sent him upstairs to punish the boy. I'll teach that young brat to swear, he roared, and started up the stairs. When he reached the top of the staircase, he tripped on the top step and fell flat on his face. His wife covered her ears for a few moments as a string of foul language that would have embarrassed a sailor came flowing from his mouth. You'd better come down now, she called up after the air had somewhat cleared from the stench of the language. I think Tyler's had enough for this first lesson. Later, Tyler used some of the language he'd heard from his father while he was playing in the street. A well-dressed lady was walking by and was horrified by the language she heard coming from the young boy. She said, Lad, aren't you ashamed of using such language? Tyler yelled back, That's nothing, lady. You ought to hear my old man. Tyler's dad was teaching his son evil habits by the bad example he was giving him. Bad example is scandalous and hurts the soul of another person. 
It's considerably worse when the soul you're hurting is your own child's. Giving bad example is called scandal, and it's a mortal sin against the fifth commandment. Remember what Jesus said about children, millstones, and the deep sea. This story kind of resembles my own upbringing. My father, who wasn't a Catholic, as if that somehow explains or excuses his behavior, had an incredibly foul mouth. His language in front of my mother was relatively mild because she didn't like to hear it, but he seemed to have no boundaries when it was just he and I. Dad would literally beat me if he caught me telling a lie, and he insisted I should never lie. Now, he was a business owner and politician. I heard him lie often and repeatedly when it served his purpose, yet for me to lie was worthy of his abuse. I could relate other things, but there's no sense in airing dirty family laundry, even though he's been dead for almost 35 years. Don't get me wrong, I loved my father, and even though my parents divorced while I was in my mid-twenties because of his marital infidelity, remained very devoted to him for the rest of his life. Dad taught me a lot of good things, especially about being a man, despite that in many other things he set a terribly horrible example. Relative to today's modern parents, though, especially dads, my dad was a virtual saint. The vast majority of dads I see today don't even have any business being married, much less having children. They're immature, selfish, don't assume their God-given responsibilities, and don't parent the children they have. It's especially saddening to me when those dads are Catholic. I'm ashamed for them because they lack the decency to be ashamed of themselves. The things I have to say here obviously don't apply to all men, but the number is significant enough that it merits this commentary. Modern dads and husbands don't manage their money well because if they did, the mother of their children wouldn't have to work outside the home rather than nurture her children at home. Modern dads want to be their kids' buddies rather than actually parent the kids. Modern dads don't want to exercise their God-given authority over their children, leaving that to moms, who most likely want to be buddies as well. You might be thinking, Joe, what gives you the right to be critical of us dads? Why can't you mind your own business? Conscience bothering you over what I said? I am minding my business. One of the seven spiritual works of mercy is to admonish the sinner, and if what I've said bothers you, then consider yourself duly admonished. You may rebut, but Joe, things have changed since you were a kid. Being a husband and father aren't like they were back in your day. That's hogwash. The world may change, but divine principles never do. That's why they're called principles. Paul rightly tells us about God's perfection and immutable character when he says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever in Hebrews 13.8. That means his law can't change either. If a thing was true in apostolic times, it's just as true today. Paul, who was the greatest Catholic teacher over these last 2,000 years, gave us a blueprint for being a dad in the fifth and sixth chapters of Ephesians. Actually, he lays out the proper roles and behaviors for wives and children as well. You might want to read it. It only takes a few minutes. Regarding dad's parenting, among other things, Paul writes in Ephesians 6:4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. 
What Paul was talking about wasn't avoiding the things that may anger your kids. He wasn't telling dads to give in to their every whim and making pampered little snowflakes out of them. He was setting forth a principle. If you fail to rear your children strictly under Christ's disciplines, they'll grow up angry. I know. I've been that child. There are tons of things I can say to dads at this point, but I'll just wrap things up by talking about one topic. All parents love their children, but when those kids get to be teenagers, the parents don't like them very much. That's understandable because there are so many hormonal, chemical, and psychological changes going on inside a teen that he or she doesn't like himself or herself very much either. But let's consider that teen suicide is at epidemic levels in America and most of the Western world. Do you know why? Because parents, especially dads, aren't rearing their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So the kids are full of anger, negativity, and lack of direction in their lives. This leads to despair, and despair leads to suicide. Teen suicide leaves guilt-ridden parents behind who find it too late to change the things that led to their child killing himself. As badly as I hate to make such a prediction, if you don't begin to follow Paul's counsel that I pointed out to you here, some of you will be in your parish church one day to bury your teenage child. I'm not making such a dire prediction as a scare tactic. That's beneath me and disrespectful to you. I'm making this prediction because I've seen it firsthand. There are always dire consequences when you violate a principle set forth by God, and failing to rear your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord is a violation that will turn you from a parent into a mourner. Can you see yourself making converts? Very few books have ever been written to teach the mechanics of practical Catholic evangelization, something all Catholics are obliged to do. Of the books available, none teach you a step-by-step method for actually cultivating an inquirer, then taking that inquirer all the way to the baptismal font. Until now, nobody is more qualified to teach Catholic evangelization than Joe Sixpack, the Every Catholic Guy. Joe Sixpack has made hundreds of converts since 1988 in small group and one-on-one venues, and 84 of them are his adult godchildren. Consequently, Joe Sixpack, the Every Catholic Guy, is a virtual treasure trove of how-to resources for evangelization. In the Lay Evangelist's Handbook, Joe Sixpack will show you how to become one of God's rock stars of evangelization, what the two primary obligations are for all Catholics that most people don't know. How to begin the journey to becoming a saint, the actual mechanics of productive evangelization, the dangers of nice Catholicism, how to hear God laugh, what to do step-by-step to win over a convert, and much, much more. Get your copy of the Lay Evangelist's Handbook by Joe Sixpack, the Every Catholic Guy, today in print or ebook on Amazon, Apple Books, Barnes & Noble, and Kobo. I believe a really great way to teach the faith is through stories, parables, and anecdotes. So here's today's story. Jimmy was only 12 years old. One afternoon, Jimmy's mom told him he couldn't go swimming when he asked permission to do so, but the boy went swimming anyway. 
When Jimmy's mom found out, and when he returned home, she told him how disappointed she was with his disobedience. He said he was sorry and that he'd never do it again. Jimmy's mom said, I forgive your disobedience, but I've got to punish you. You can't ride your bike for a whole week. The ever-sly Jimmy thought of a way he might be able to cut his punishment. After dinner, he offered to dry the dishes, which is pretty unusual for Jimmy. His mom saw through his plan, but she was a good sport about it and played along. When the boy was finished drying the dishes, his mom said, Jimmy, you've been a good boy about drying the dishes for me, so I'm going to take part of your punishment off. You can ride your bike after four days. I'm going to reduce the punishment by three days. Jimmy was granted what we might comparatively call a partial indulgence. If his mother had taken away all the punishment, it'd be like a plenary indulgence. When you've disobeyed God by violating his laws and committing sin, he forgives you when you make a good confession, but he still demands punishment for even your forgiven sins, just like Jimmy's mom, because he's a just God. Then when you do something helpful or pleasing to Holy Mother Church, she takes away part or all of the punishment. This is how indulgences work. It'd be a great idea if you begin using indulgences. Purgatory's the alternative, and that ain't nothing nice. That's it for this episode, six-packers. Be sure to come back and listen to next week's episode. If you like The Cantankerous Catholic, be sure to write a review wherever you download it so other like-minded Catholics can more easily find it. And be sure to visit my show notes to get links to other things relevant to this episode. As long as you're on the show notes, drop a comment at the bottom to let me know what you think of this episode or to suggest topics for future episodes. If you happen to be on cantankerouscatholic.com for the show notes, download a free copy of The Best of What We Believe, Why We Believe It, Volume 1, and visit the Joe's Stuff page to get copies of my other books and some really neat coffee mugs. I think you six-packers are the cream of the Catholic crop, and I really appreciate you listening. Just remember, though, comfort and conviction don't live on the same This has been The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Thanks for subscribing, and be sure to visit cantankerouscatholic.com to get your free copy of Joe's popular book, The Best of What We Believe, Why We Believe It.